week after Easter, and um, we have like wonderful weather out there. Here, fun fact about this building, it is so old that um, it might be a little hot in here. So sorry. Once we turn the boiler off, we cannot turn it back on until the fall. So like, it's kind of like gambling with a building. Like, okay, are we going to do it? Do we never want to have heat again? We're um, going to hold off a little bit longer <laughs> until that happens. Um, but we're so thankful that we actually have this building. And um, it still is like, was just talking with Beth this morning. And it's like, what a miracle that like, this is the place that we get to call home. Um, okay, Beth is, uh, Beth Guckenberger is here this morning. It's probably why most of you are here. Um, and you're a little disappointed that it looks like I'm settling in. Here's why. Uh, because we're having like a little family meeting. There's no like big news coming at the end of this, but once or twice a year, I normally like to sit up here and talk a little bit about like some of the like more logistical operational things. And again, I know everyone is so pumped for this. Last week, I like ran around this room with a streamer. This week, I'm talking about a budget. So I want to be the most versatile pastor in the world. I'm not a best-selling author. I don't have, like, my own TV program. But, man, I can run around a room with a streamer and talk about a budget at the same time. And so, come on. Um, all right. Here's the truth. I know that most of you are like, ugh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I, I made a graph for what today is probably going to look like. Um, light red is most of you, 75%. Wait, why am I here? I thought this was church. Where's that woman that was supposed to be preaching? You promised to me the normal guy wasn't on. That's 75% of you this morning. I totally get it. And then there's the people like me that when I was going to church um, and the pastor would do something like this, I was like all locked in. This is so fascinating. I've been wondering about some of the business type factors for this church. What a week to forget my graphing calculator. It helps. <laughs> it helps if you say it in like a nasally voice. Um, and again, I feel you. This is for you. 25%. This meeting is for you. So we're going to talk about some numbers, some money, and then kind of overall vision of where we're going. We can go to the next slide. This is just a general like information of where we're going. And if you've been around for a while, you've felt this right here. This is like Sunday attendance, uh, basically an average. We had um, 48 people basically averaging when we started this church. And again, you've like experienced probably every month five or 10 more people starting to call this place home. Um, last week, there was 180 here on Easter, which was the biggest service that we've ever had. Um, but yeah, we can clap for that because... Uh, now, here's what I'd love to do. If you were a part of our church in 2020, like September to December, would you stand up? If you were like a regular part of our church in 2020, okay, and you're going to hate this. You're going to be standing for a while. Um, <laughs> If you are now not standing, if you're sitting, I want you to know that, like, the number one thing, first of all, I hear when people come to our church is, man, it feels like family. The second thing I hear is, this place feels authentic. The third is, like, the pastor's so good looking. Let's focus on the first two. Those first two don't happen by accident, sitting people. Um, these people right here have set a culture from the very beginning. And so when you come in and say it feels like family, they're probably thinking, of course it feels like family. When it was the 40 of us in Shakespeare Theater, when there were 30 of us in Catherine and I's living room, that felt like family. And I want you to know if, uh, if you're sitting, the people that are standing have made this very much what the church is today. And so I would love to thank them through some like clapping and making noise.
Because what you experience as family or authenticity, um, these people have sacrificed a lot for, and the solution isn't, we should have just stayed in the living room and never added any more people. That's a cult. Um, but also, like, they have given up something. So you can be seated now. I'm so sorry, and thank you. Um, I really did want to honor the people that have made this happen. We can go to the next slide. This is just kids' attendance. Not just kids' attendance. These are the movers and shakers of the world in 20 years. Um, and then the next one after this. This is the number I care most about right here. Percent of adults in a house group. If there is one metric that I like lose sleep over, I really am not losing any sleep these days. Um, I'm in preparation for a baby. But if there was one number I lose sleep over, it's this right here. And I am so pumped to see as more adults have started coming on Sunday morning, the percent of adults in a house group has not gone down. Actually, it's gone up since we started. Guys, this, this is the sweet spot of our church. This is the moneymaker. This is the secret sauce. And so if you're in a house group, you know that this 67% is a big deal. Because like being in a house group, figuring out how to make this church smaller is one of the keys to making this place feel like family. And if you're not in a house group, please, please get in one. I've probably never said that from stage before, I know. We're a church with two front doors. Oh, thank you, Caitlin. You guys knew that too, not just like staff, right? We're a church with two front doors. We say it all the time. This, um, and we just started a kind of a new session of house groups. Get in a house group um, because there are things the church is called to do. Biblically, ecclesiology, ecclesiology. Oh, boy, I tried to sound smart, and now I can't figure Ecclesi Ecclesiastically, no? Okay. Theologically, uh, there's things the church is supposed to do. It is hot in here, isn't it? Um, and, and we've chosen to do some of those just in the living room or around a dining room table because they are just better there. There's community that can happen there, and so if you're not in a house group, go to the connect table after service. Caitlin's going to be there. Mandy's going to be there. Talk to me. We want to make sure that you get plugged in there. All right, next, let's talk about money. Everyone loves to talk about money in church. This is, first I tapped into my business uh, background. They would be so ashamed of me for Excel, but this is the money that our church gives away. So at City Church, we are deeply committed to being a church that tithes. Um, it is your call. It is between you and the Lord. If you want to tithe, we are a church that gives away 10%. And we gave away uh, $19,000 when we launched in 2020, $27,000 in 2021, and we're on pace to give away $60,000 in 2022. Guys, that's like double what we did last year. And so praise the Lord. Again, this number, the 60000 it might not be impressive to other churches. What is impressive is that that thing is going up and to the right. We're starting to support local missionaries. We're making like foreign uh, international partners and going um, on mission trips and then supporting people outside of the country. We are uh, supporting church plants. We helped launch a church plant in Manhattan last year, Miami this year. In a few months, we're starting helping start one in Ferguson, Missouri. Guys, this is a big deal. We want to be a church that gives because God gave everything for us, right? He bankrupted heaven. He gave us Jesus. And because of what he did, this is what we do. Because of the generosity of God, this is what we do. We choose to also be generous with our money. And so at City Church, we want to do that. Next slide is now what the church is receiving. This is kind of weekly giving, and then we can go to the next one, which is our budget to actual. And so um, I'm not worried about that, but we are a little bit below. Like 
budget to actual. Um, so this is the plan that we made, and then here is what's coming in. Here's what I'll say about that, is um, this church is right now really generously supported, not only from the inside, but from um, primarily seven churches outside of this place, in Cincinnati, um, L.A., Phoenix, Memphis, and um, so I can say this because if you guys don't give, like, we will still survive for the next couple of years. I really want you to give the way that you like to be paid. I like to be paid regularly and generously. I'm sure you like to be paid regularly and generously, consistently, but also hopefully something that, like, makes you go, oh, wow, that's really great. And so um, if you're not someone who is uh, calling this place home and regularly and generously giving to this church, can I encourage you to do that? Um, it is not because, like, we need my, I can say this now with a pure heart. We'll be fine. We've got sugar mamas all over the country, okay? They are giving to us. But that does go away, some of them at the end of this year, some of them at the end of next year. Um, we really want to be a church that in a couple of years, it's like we turn 18 and we're on our own, and we want to be able to support ourselves. And so for those of you that do give generously and regularly, thank you so much. Like you make this happen. And if you don't, but you call this place home, I would love to challenge you um, to do that. Because of what he did, this is what we do. Because of what he did, this is the way that we want to live, which is generously um, and within our means. Um, so that's kind of the financial picture. Next is maybe a little bit more exciting, our staff. I don't know if you know who is on our staff here, but this is the team that makes so much of what happens here work. Um, they are awesome. I'll go clockwise. Top right is Caitlin Snyder. She is our connections director here. You always see her in the lobby, in the family room, uh, at the connect table. Then Jalen. Jalen and I co-lead worship together. Um, Jalen's our creative arts director, and he is the one playing keys up here today. Uh, Mandy leads our house groups and does a lot of discipleship stuff for us, and so she's one of the people you want to talk to if you want to get plugged into a house group. And then if you have kids, you definitely know the top left, that's Megan, leads our kids' city. Um, and then so many incredible volunteers that make um, this place work, make this place happen. Uh, the big thing that I want to say is now going forward, we're starting to look. This is two full-time, three part-time people. We're starting to look to hire a third full-time person. And so um, the complexity of this church is increasing. The numbers, have, as, as you saw, have been increasing. Uh, we are just kind of starting the process of like, okay, we want to hire a third full-time person to help manage some of the complexity and the people. Like, we want um, care to be our primary objective here. We want to make sure that as we grow, it doesn't just get more and more corporate and less and less personal, but we want to call this place home and it feel like family for everyone. And so uh, two different things that we're looking for. Uh, we're only going to hire one of them, maybe more like an executive pastor, director type person. So someone that's running operations and um, finance and the day-to-day -day and systems and communication and maybe helping with some problem solving. That would be one position that we've been looking for. The other one is more of an associate pastor, like teaching, creative, vision, discipleship. We can only hire one. We only have the budget to do one. And so we're on the lookout for either one of those. If you know people, we'd love it to be internal, um, but we know that might not be the case. If you know people, please email me um, because we, I'd, I'd love it to be like a person of high trust, someone that we know or someone that we know who knows someone else. Um, but we're starting that process. Uh, there is no timeline, but uh, with both a baby on the way for Catherine and I and just our staff doing so much, 
uh, we figured it is time to pull the trigger on making that happen. Um, one of my goals is to be a pastor even when I'm 60, and one of the things I think that I'll need to do is, like, it's been a sprint for 18 months. How do we find good, healthy, sustainable rhythms to make that the case? Um, so both executive and then associate. I'm sorry, what did you say, Beth? You, you would like to apply? <laughs> this is an awkward time to say that to me, but... Um, We'll see how you do today, but I, I think that I think your likelihood looks good. <laughs> she didn't say that, guys. But we can pray. All right. Um, the next week is probably more of like a vision of where we're going. So if you're in town, be here next week. That's more of like spiritually where we're going. Um, this is more operationally and logistically. Um, next week is probably the biggest thing we've started as a church. It's a seven-month initiative built mostly around discipleship and following Jesus and doing that together. And so really, really excited for what we're kind of calling Vision Sunday next week. But um, that is basically an update with where we're at now. And uh, here's what I'll, the last thing I'll say. Uh, my pastor in Las Vegas, he um, said the church is three things. It's a cause a community, and a corporation. And so we want to be a cause that is all around Jesus. We want to be a community that does this together. We do need some of these things to be both healthy and have systems with integrity in order to do the first two. And so um, if this was boring to you, totally understand. I get it. Also, like, we want to have good systems so that we can be a church that's around for the long haul. Um, okay, I want to invite up uh, Beth Guckenberger, who is going to be speaking this morning. She is the founder of Back to Back. Yeah, we can clap. Go ahead. The founder of Back to Back, fellow Hoosier, which I know you guys are also really excited about. I see a producer here in the front row. Yeah. He's allowed? Excommunicated okay, after yeah. this, but yeah. Um, but also just a great pioneer for the city of Cincinnati. And so I know this is going to be wonderful. Beth, thanks so much no, for being here. Thanks. That was like the most enjoyable business meeting ever. I'm usually in that 75%. I like that. I mean, I, mean, I, I definitely... Appreciate, I told Chris before the service, I appreciate what this church stands for. I love watching the way in which God is putting wind in your sails, and it's just my joy to be here in your community. And this is not in my notes, but one time, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I was living still as a missionary in Mexico. If I haven't met you yet, that's what my day job is. And I came back in the city, and I was speaking at a church here in the city called the People's Church. And I, I had never been there before. I didn't know that pastor, Chris Beard, ever. ever. And I met him in the back um, before the service started. And, you know, we talked about our kids. And then he, came, he went out to introduce me, just like, um, just like Chris just did. And he said to his congregation, let's welcome home our missionary, Beth Guggenberg. And I'm walking out giving him a look like, I mean, welcome home. I just got here. And you and I both know I'm not like your missionary, but if you want these people to think that, like I'm not out in you, but I'm giving him to look like this is not how this actually works. And he looked at my face and he realized what I was thinking. And he said to turn to his congregation, he said, Hey, Beth Hale's from Cincinnati. Let's tell her how many churches are there in Cincinnati. And in unison, the church started to chant one church, one church. And he said, if you're from Cincinnati, welcome home. And I thought to myself, they have they t nobody remembers what I taught that morning all these years later, but I'm positive they remember what it feels like to say we are part of the Capital C Church, and that does make us family. So even though um, this, yeah, he taught me more that day than I certainly taught them, but uh, 
you do have a very strong sense of family in this community, and it's my joy to be here with you all in it. Well, I told, um, I told Chris, I, well, I woke up on Friday and felt like God gave me a message specifically for this community, and so we're going to dive right into it. Uh, I have a son getting ready to graduate from high school, and so um, he's the 11th of our 11 children, so I've done this before, but there's still this sense at the very end, like, you, you, you're just trying to pack in all the things that you hope the last 18 years you had a chance to say. And so I've been saying to him every chance I can, like, don't forget who you are. Take every opportunity you can to deepen your faith. On a very regular basis, call your mother. You know, like all like the, the really, really important things. And today we're going to study a passage out of Matthew 16. I didn't bring slides for it, so if you have phones or Bibles or whatever you want to, you can follow along with me. In some ways, this is like Jesus' graduation speech to his disciples. He had been with them for a while. He knew where it was, the deadline they were coming up against, and he had a few things he wanted to make sure that they knew before he left them. So this is Matthew 16. We're going to start with verse 13. It says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which normally, you know, you read those like details in your Bible and you think, I don't really have any idea what that means, so I'm just going to go on to the next part, which has got to be better than that part. Um, But I want to take a minute to explain to you about Caesarea Philippi and why that detail is so important to the story. Most of Jesus' ministry happened in this little 12-mile radius, like this little little tiny triangle, like 90% of Jesus' ministry happened inside of it. But on this particular day, he walked his disciples over 25 miles to Caesarea Philippi. They went on a field trip because he had something very specific he wanted to teach them in that very specific place of geography. I had a chance to go to Caesarea Philippi, and I just took a picture of it with my iPhone. It's not that exciting of a picture, but I want you to see a couple of details about Caesarea Philippi. This is like this particular uh, rock is like the Eiffel Tower of, of this community. It is the focal point. It's all of life happened right around this particular spot. It was at the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon. And this community, Caesarea Philippi, like forever, I mean, when the Greeks were there and then now the Romans, they were known for their worship of fertility gods. It was very pay, a, a place of incredible pagan worship. In fact, people came from all over the world to worship the god of Pan, who was here. And just to keep this as PG as possible, um, you worship fertility gods in all kinds of really interesting ways. And the way, in fact, the word we get, pandemonium, comes from the way that they would worship these fertility gods. Just lots of craziness, like unbelievable amounts of shenanigans. And they believed that the fertility gods lived in the underworld And they would have to worship them in really particular ways in order to call them out from the underworld and come through that circle, that black circle in the middle of that rock. It was a natural spring that would come once a year and fertilize the land there that would irrigate that land. And they believed that the fertility gods came and irrigated their lands and you can just put all your imagination to work. So they, that, that, that black hole in the middle of that rock, they called the gates of hell. Because they literally believed from the underworld came the gods to do what it is that they were asking them to do. So I just, I want you to imagine some of the shenanigans that they were doing during the pandemonium that they were creating as they were worshiping these gods. And now Jesus and his disciples, after a 25-mile walk, show up in Caesarea Philippi. It was like the red light district. I mean, those, those like fishermen, 
They would not have ever seen anything like that. It was literally a group of people eagerly knocking on the gates of hell, calling forth spirits from the underworld. It would have been crazy. So it says in verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he says to his disciples, as they're watching pandemonium, who do people say the Son of Man is? Like, and a good, a good rabbi asks good questions. In fact, I think good teaching leaves you with more questions than answers. My goal today is to leave you with more questions than answers. Jesus was doing that same thing there. He was asking him in the middle of that, like, what kind of difference do I make in a place like this? They replied, verse 14, some people say you're the son of the John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And those are good answers because those were passionate prophets, national reformers, people who stood up to corruption in their day. They were miracle workers, men who spoke the words of God. Those are all things Jesus was known for. So I, I get why they said that, but it wasn't the answer Jesus was looking for. So he goes on in verse 15 and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Standing in this place, who, who do you say that I am? And it's really the same question as relevant in 2022 as it was back on that graduation speech. Who do we say Jesus is? In the middle of the pandemonium we see going on all around us, what kind of difference does Jesus make in a place like the one that we're living in right now? Uh, pretty fresh for me, probably too fresh for me to elaborate too much. My 40-year-old sister-in-law died this last week of cancer. And I was saying to my little brother in the middle of the hard, we study God's truth, we literally metabolize the word of God so that in moments when the hard comes to our front door, we have something to stand on. We have, we have thing, when things around us feel disorienting and we're confronted with the question, what kind of difference does knowing the Son of Man make in the middle of circumstances you don't like and you can't control, that feel literally out of control? What kind of difference does that make for us? And honestly, that's, I was driving here this morning thinking, that's what I want you to go home thinking about. I want you to go home thinking about what kind of difference does it make to know who the Son of, of God is? Simon Peter's going to have a pretty good answer in the next verse. He says in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Like, you responded to the Spirit who told you the answer to the question, and now you're testifying to it. Understanding who the Son of Man is is not a cognitive, it's not a cerebral exercise. It's, it's an exercise it's a response to a gift that's been given to us, that gift of faith, that gift of understanding. He goes on to say in verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And Jesus was following this rabbinic principle of using what's around you to teach. I've, I've been to Israel a bunch of times, and like the passage where he's talking about you could get a millstone tied around your neck and thrown to the bottom of the sea. He told that story, that parable about not hurting little children in the middle of a town that manufactured millstones. And when he talks about mustard seeds, he was in a field full of mustard seeds. And when he talked about water or birds, there were water and birds around. He uses the environment in order to make really complex concepts seem understandable. So frankly, Christian tradition has been debating this passage for a really long time. Like some people think, like Peter is the rock and the church needs to be built on Peter. 
And some people say the truth of what Jesus, of what Peter said is the rock, and we need to build the church on the truth that Peter testified. I think all of those explanations ignore the principles and the, and the method that Jesus used to taught. I mean, what if Jesus was saying, uh, I'll tell you, Peter, on this kind of rock, I'm going to build my church. Right here on this rock, right here next to this chaos, right here where these people don't understand me, right in the middle of pandemonium. And the gates of hell, they're not going to be able to touch it because that's, that's who I am. You want to know who I am? I'm someone who can go into pandemonium and build a church right in the middle of it. And gates, they're defensive structures So, in the ancient world in particular. And so by saying the gates of hell will not overcome, he's literally suggesting the gates are going to be attacked. Who's on the attack? We are. We're the offensive. We are not supposed to hold the, the church's doors and like go, I hope none of the world seeps into here and let's just stay in here and be as safe and secluded as possible. We are not to be holding back the kingdom of darkness. We are supposed to be advancing the kingdom of light, right? That's what he asks us to do. We're to storm places where the enemy has strongholds and take ground. And again, at this point, the disciples would have studied with Jesus for several years, and now he's commissioning them in this essentially graduation speech. Attack evil and build the church. Don't hide uh, about three weeks ago now, I was at a function back-to-back. Um, -back the ministry I work with has a relationship with the Tim Tebow Foundation. And so a bunch of um, Tim Tebow's partners were together, and I was sitting next to a missionary 50 years in communist Laos. And I was just asking, like, swap a missionary stories, like, tell me something that God's been doing there. And she told me that um, one of their most prolific church builders is a man who was jailed for 16 years for um, teaching the gospel. And, you know, you, you think, like, shouldn't, like, God, like, figure out a way to spring him out of that since he got in trouble for, like, him? But what, what he and his wife figured out, once a month his wife was allowed to visit him to bring him new clothes and a bowl of sticky rice. And so she would take strips of the gospel and she would sew them into the hems of his clothes and wrap them up in little balls and stick them in the sticky rice. And he would use those fresh verses to teach um, his church services that he was holding clandestine in that prison. When the prisoners got out, he would send them to his wife, who then had a network of people who were part of discipling them. And I was listening to her talk about these people who were risking their life in order to build the church right in the middle of some unbelievable pandemonium. And I'm thinking, why does it take so much courage? Why do I have to muster up so much courage to approach someone at Target? Like, like, like this kind of faith is available to us, and God's asking us to use it. He goes on in verse 19 to say, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I, I just can't believe he gives us the keys, that he wants us to go on his behalf into hard places. Um, at the beginning of 2020, two weeks before Easter, I got a phone call from a church in the city, the Tri-County Vineyard, that they, um, I'm, a, I'm allowed to say this, that they had a board-initiated separation from their pastor, and they were looking for an interim pastor. And um, I had been speaking there several times a year for like 15 years. And so they had just gone virtual and they were looking for a face that would be familiar to people who'd be turning on the screen. I'd never been a pastor before. Um, I'd never planned on being a pastor, but uh, I, I felt in my spirit that God wanted me to take on that assignment. 
I did that for eight years, eight years, eight months. At the end of those eight months, I told that elder board, I've been a missionary in a third world country where I had to learn a foreign language and I was surrounded by physical challenges and that was a piece of cake compared to being a pastor. So you all be nice to Chris, please. <laughs> Hire whatever these positions that he needs um, so he can stay in this race till he's 60 because it's a challenging job. And two weeks into that assignment, um, I was, I had an um, agenda in a staff meeting because leaders bring agendas to meetings. And I, I mean, two weeks in, I, I, I couldn't get, the agenda was like not unfolding the way I was imagining. And I felt like I was hitting my head against the wall. And I finally pushed the agenda away. And I said, listen, I'm not the only person in here with an agenda. We have an enemy and his chief agenda item is to disrupt God's kids doing God's work in God's house. And so like, let's just imagine, let's use our, like, our Disney imaginations or maybe our Pixar imaginations. Like, let's, let's imagine, if, if we could see the agenda of an enemy, what would it have on it? And everyone was really quiet, and then one brave woman said, I think he'd want us not to trust you. I'm like, absolutely, and I wrote distrust on this whiteboard behind me. And then this guy said, because this was week three of COVID, he said, I think he'd want us to be so afraid we were selfish. I'm like, definitely, and I wrote fear and selfishness. Eventually, we populated the whiteboard full of the kinds of activities the enemy is doing to hurt God's kids doing God's work in God's house. And I said to them, I've been reading my Bible for a long time, so I know in Ephesians 6, it says we're to put on the full armor of God. And in 1 Peter 5, it says that we have this enemy, and he's like a lion, and he's roaring around, and he wants to destroy us. The problem is, when I sew those two passages together, I get the impression I'm supposed to put my armor on and wait for the lion to come get me. But he doesn't have any new tricks. Everything he can possibly do, we've already seen. So if I already know what he's going to do, why does he get to come get me? Why don't I go get him first? Like, I'd like to go attack him before he can come and get us. And that spirit is exactly what God is talking about when he was taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi on this 25-mile hike. He wanted them to understand, if you're going to do that, if you're going to go against the gates of hell, these are the kinds of things that you're going to have to see. And then in verse 24, it goes on to say, then Jesus said, and in the Greek, that means, he, it really means calls, which implies that he yelled this next thing. So I'm not, I'm not bold enough to yell to you, but just imagine in your mind that Jesus was yelling what he said next to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So imagine him yelling this and into the pandemonium. And some people catch a glimpse of this man up on this hill, looking at what they're doing, shouting about denying yourself. And picking up a cross and following him. Like in a city full of false idols, Jesus asked them to commit to one true God. Did he take the disciples here to say, this is where I want you to come build my church. I want you to go into the most degenerate places you can find where God is not even known. And there I want you to go build my church. And that's exactly what they did. They went to the ends of the earth where gods were worshipped in unspeakable ways. And they gave their lives doing exactly what they were told to do by their rabbi. Tradition and historians like Josephus and 
um, have told us, well, what happened to that little graduating class of disciples. Here's what we believe happened next. Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome around 66 AD. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down at his request since he didn't feel it worthy to die in the same manner of his Lord. Andrew went to a place called the Land of the Man-Eaters, which was now known as the Soviet Union. There he preached um, also in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where he was crucified. Thomas, listen in that day, was most active in the east area of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India. He died there when he was pierced by the sword of four soldiers. Philip had a powerful ministry in northern Africa, Carthage, and then in Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. In retaliation, this proconsul had Philip arrested and then cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector, he ministered in Persia and Ethiopia, and some of the oldest reports say that he was stabbed to death there in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, he's the missionary. He, he, was, he went to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, southern Arabia, and there were various accounts how there in Arabia he met his end as a martyr. John, James, the son of Alphaeus, he ministered in Syria. Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon, um, Simon the Zealot, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Now, Matthias, he was the apostle that was chosen to replace Judas. Tradition has him in Syria with Andrew, and he died there by, burn, by being burned to death. And John is the only apostle thought to have died a natural death from old age. Um, eventually became a church leader in Ephesus and is said to, although we don't know for sure, that he took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. An early Latin tradition has him escaping unhurt after being cast into a boiling oil at Rome. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Like They heard that teaching. They captured that message. <laughs> they went and gave their lives for it. And so now we're back to the beginning of the story. Like When people later ask the disciples the same questions that Jesus once did, like, who do people say the Son of Man is? They put their life on display. He was one worth dying for. And, and now, 2022, here we are on April 24th, it's, it's our turn. We are surrounded by our own kind of pandemonium, where there are worship to other gods going on all around us in all kinds of ways. So we can either bunker up, or we can decide that we're going to deny ourselves. We're going to pick up the cross, and we're going to follow him. So church... Who do we say that he is? And it can be awful tempting on a Sunday morning because it feels a lot better for me to tell you things like this. He's the giver of all good gifts. He's the forgiver of our sins. He's the one who promises eternal life. And I promise you, to be sure, those things are true. And there's a lot we gain from entering into fellowship and relationship with Jesus. But the challenge for me in this passage is, am I, am I willing to go and do and serve and sacrifice however it is that he asks? Am I someone who is willing to storm those kind of gates, to, to throw that first punch, to go after an enemy, to advance the kingdom of life? Because also, he, he is the one who stormed those gates, and I, am I willing to follow him there? He's the one who offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Will, will I go and lay my life down? He, he made himself nothing, 
taking on the very nature of a servant? Will I be inconvenienced for him? Will I, will I sacrifice for him? There, there are things in my life that keep me from wanting to take those kinds of steps. I, I often teach out of the book of Exodus. It's like my, one of my favorite books. In fact, I love those plagues, right? I mean, the, the plagues in the Pharaoh and Moses let my people go story, where Moses leads God's kids out of slavery and into what will become freedom. In fact, uh, speaking of pandemonium, Exodus 10 is the plague of darkness. It says the darkness fell so thick on the land that you could feel it. I feel like we know what that feels like, right? Don't you feel like you have been places where darkness is so thick you could feel it? But it goes on in that passage to say that everywhere that God's people went, light was among them. There is no darkness too dark that he can't come and bring his image, his light that he gives us to bear in any place that, he, that we want to go. Another plague that I love in that, in that section of the Bible is the plague, plague of the frogs. Um, this is Exodus 8. You're welcome to read it with me if you want to. The, in this plague of the frogs and what it has to do with this passage in Matthew 16 is there's this place where uh, Moses is increasingly through God's power trying to get Pharaoh's attention because he wants his kids, God's kids, to be able to worship God in the way that they freely choose. And so he's doing these plagues in order to demonstrate um, the power of God and the consequences that ensue when we don't do what he wants. In fact, there's, an, there's another part of this passage a little bit later where Pharaoh says to his magicians, could y'all come up with a plague as cool as Moses' God is doing? I'd like to show our people that our gods is as powerful as the God of Moses. And those magicians come back to Pharaoh and say, um, all of our power combined does not compare to the power that's found in the finger of their God. Like, it's a pretty powerful power. And so God uses that power to bring a bunch of frogs into the land. It says in um, Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him this. This is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And if you refuse to let them go, I'm going to send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. The frogs will come up in your palace, in your bedroom. The frogs will be on your bed, in the houses of your officials, and on your people, and in your ovens, and on your kneading troughs. They're going to come up everywhere. And that's exactly what they did. Pharaoh did not let God's people go. And so the, the frogs came and literally populated the entire place. And Pharaoh got tired of them, having frogs on his people and his bed and his kneading trough and all that. So he wisely called the man who put them there back to his space. That was Moses. It says that Pharaoh summoned Moses. Um, we're now in verse 6. And Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And then I'll let your people go worship God. And Moses, in like, uh, I'm sure divinely inspired, but stroke a genius, says to this guy who has all the power, okay, you want the frogs to leave you in your bed and your ovens and your eating trough and your people. W when do you want them to leave? I'm going to leave you the honor of deciding when you want them to leave. And if you didn't like the frogs and the guy that put them there said you can decide when they leave, when would you say you want them to go? Like right now, right? I'm not making this up. Feel free to follow along. It says in verse 10, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Like he wants to sleep one more night with the frogs. <laughs> and that doesn't make any sense until you think about the kinds of things that we make a choice to hold on to that are in our beds and in our ovens and our kneading troughs and they're up on our people. 
And they're preventing us from embracing the kind of discipleship lifestyle that God's calling us to here in Matthew chapter 16. And God's saying to us right now, April 24th, 2022, I'm going to give you the honor of deciding when you want this to, to leave. This bad habit, this habitual sin, this ongoing fear, this thing that's holding you back. I got a big plan for you. We're going to build the church in the most unbelievable place. But we got to get rid of the frogs. Like, when do you want to get rid of your frog? It's stopping what I have for you. I got a plan for you. When you I'm going to leave you the honor of deciding when do you want to get rid of your frog. And some of us look at Jesus and we go, like, can we just deal with it tomorrow? I just want to sleep with that frog one more night. I just want to have it with me one more time. The best frog kicker outer I ever met was a woman that mentored me for many years. Um, she just passed away this last year, but she, uh, she passed away at 80. So she was many decades my senior, but she was someone who has walked with God so well for so long. I don't know if you know anyone like this, that when I'm around her, I just used to like to rub up against her. Just like, I just, like, whatever you have, I want it. And this is not how discipleship happens, but I just like, I just, I just wanted her. She just always had a sense of peace about her. And my husband and I fostered for about eight years, two little girls that grew up in an orphanage that she was running. That's how I met her. Then when they were older, they came to live in my house full-time. And um, she was a, a beautiful mentor with, for me um, during that time. Anyway, these little girls, typically I'm a huge fan of family reunification, but these little girls were from a family that wanted to recruit them into some illegal activity. So we were always hiding and protecting them from anybody finding out where they were. And uh, then thanks to the Internet and Facebook, someone found them. And they began to call my house and threaten to come get them. And most of the time, my strategy was just to hang up on them, like, I'm not having anything to do with you people. But one Monday, they called me, and I could tell everything had escalated a little bit. They were, sh they were shouting at me on the phone that they were going to come to the house on Friday and bring some authorities with them and have the kids removed. And, I mean, I hung up the phone, and I knew this thing was, we were in a new ball game. So I called Martha, my, my mentor, and I said, listen, they want to come to the house on Friday, and here's what I want you to do. Bring every visitor log nobody ever signed, every educational paper, medical record, thing they put on your refrigerator. I'm going to do the same thing. If some authority wants to come to our house, we are going to let them know that we have cared for these girls for now over 16 years. Like, no way. Nobody's taken them from us. And she was all, you know, like, okay, calm as a cucumber. I spent about 25 hours that week in government offices amassing an unbelievable dossier that I knew would not allow a single person to get a word in edgewise. I was just utterly confident of my plan. On Friday, she came to our house, our ministry campus, and asked me to help her with a really heavy bag in the back of her car, which I thought was a great sign because I also had a really heavy bag inside. And she settled into our dining room with our two girls, and then about half an hour later, these people came into the ministry campus where we were living. And the best way I could describe them to you is they were like an angry mob of bees, screaming and swearing and shouting and threatening. And I was like, hi, I'm Beth. Like, welcome to Back to Back. Would you like, like, a, a iced tea, you know? And I couldn't get them to stop. They were just crazy. And I, I brought them into the house, and our house was like cement, you know, like Mexican houses are. And so the acoustics are crazy, and they saw the girls for the first time, and everything ratcheted up a notch. And so I stood, I couldn't, I literally couldn't control the room. So I stood on my own dining room chair, and I yelled at the top of my lungs, I think Martha has something she wants to say. 
because she and I knew the most powerful piece of evidence that we had was a visitor log for over a decade nobody ever signed. And so I'm looking at Martha like, get the visitor log out right now. And she reaches into her bag, and I thought she was getting the visitor log, but she did not get her visitor log. She reaches in, and she pulls out her Bible. These people do not share our faith. I'm like, you are confused, and then think you're in the wrong meeting. And she opens up her Bible, and she starts to read this lovely psalm from chapter 1 about a stream, like a, a tree in season bears fruit. And, and like, it's a lovely psalm. I, I don't really care what your faith is. Some 80-year-old lady starts to read from her Bible. You get quiet, right? You're like afraid of like the lightning bolt. So everybody gets really quiet and listens to her finish someone. And I can remember thinking to myself, I would have literally never thought of this. Like this is a this is a really good idea. Now that you have control of the room at this end of someone, get the visitor log. <laughs> she didn't even take a breath. She went into Psalm two, not nearly as quotable. about why the nations plot in vain. And like she finishes Psalm two and she read Psalm three, four, five, six seven, eight, nine. At this point, the girls and I are like slumped back in our chair and I, I kind of like um, political things and I'm thinking, this is like a spiritual filibuster. Like these people, <laughs> they're gonna be hungry at some point. They're gonna have to go to the bathroom. There's a bunch of Psalms in this book, you know, like she gets to Psalm 10 and I could tell she was landing somewhere. She read this verse. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of this earth may terrify us no more. Then she closed her Bible and said, these little girls are daughters of the King Most High. They don't belong to us any more than they belong to you. You ask them where their father tell them to be. And the big one is a little feisty, even in Christ. And she was like, a key, which means right here. And the little one's like, a key. And it wasn't like they stood up and shook my hand and thanked us for, you know, years of service. Like, I don't want to mischaracterize the story. But they did push away from the table. And they started swearing and shouting and threatening and screaming and saying things I never wanted those little girls to hear. But they were saying them as they were backing up to my door. So I just, like, went around them and opened it. And they're, like, saying all these things as they're getting in their car. And I open up the gate, and they go flying out of that campus. I shut that gate and I think to myself, you've got to be kidding me. I spent 25 hours in government offices. The lady reads 10 Psalms and these people are gone. And so I go run into the house. I'm ready to go rub up against her. Like, I'm, I'm like, you did it. 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 But she, she was not done yet. She took her Bible, which is a lot bigger than mine, and stuck that thing in my face. And she said, don't you ever forget something? This is the only sword we ever take into battle. I was like, oh, you're right. So City OTR Church, I came here this morning very clearly with a message. You, you find the pandemonium and you go build your church right on top of it. And you recognize that it's going to cost you something. That's the deny yourself, pick up the cross part. But as you follow him and you wage that war, you do it with the confidence of someone who understands that you get to punch first. That there is more power in the finger of our God than anything they could ever put on display combined. And as you engage in that battle, this is the, this is the sword we take into it. I'm going to invite that worship team up and let me go ahead and pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for who you are and for the stories that you tell through the willing vessels of your saints. Continue to give us eyes to see and a heart that beats with the faith and courage 
it requires to advance kingdom of light in the face of places where we sense such utter opposition. So it is with the authority that I have as a co-heir with you here together with my spiritual siblings in your house with your kids that I ask you would commission us to do your work. Lord Jesus, bring an anointing on this community. And I pray these things in your holy, precious, and resurrected name, Jesus. Amen.